Hello, this is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Hello, welcome to this Sandbox story, which is an interview with Dr. Laura Perriman. Dr. Perriman's an ophthalmologist with world-renowned expertise of ocular surface disease. She's founder and director of dry eye services and clinical research at the Perriman Eye Institute in Seattle. Her work with optometry to manage conditions of the ocular surface has resulted in incredibly high praise from many of optometry's leading authorities. And I was introduced to her by our Sandbox Stories friend, Dr. Art Epstein. Dr. Perriman, thank you for joining us and welcome to Sandbox Stories. Oh, thank you so much, Scott, for being here. This is super cool. And I I just, I respect so much someone who does something out of passion and that's clearly what this is for you. And I, I just want to say, I, I recognize that and I respect it. And I think it's really cool. I appreciate that. And, and you are passionate about so many things. This is going to be a great conversation. So I want to start with this. You grew up in Montana. Uh, your family homestead dates back to at least 1880, because I saw a picture of an old building. Uh, and your granddaughter, you're the granddaughter of cattle ranchers. What was it like growing up in Montana? It is, I'm grateful for the upbringing. It taught me resourcefulness, resilience, um, gumption and stick-to-itiveness, um, and also the importance of community, right? Uh, yes, it taught me to be super independent and I might be, it might be dysfunctional at times, <laughs> the independence that I have, but, uh, when the chips are really down and you call your neighbors for help, so to speak, it happens. Um, so it's, it was a wonderful, wonderful, um, place to grow up. I, I'm very grateful for it. Things have changed a lot since when I was there. Um, you know, for example, Bozeman, Montana used to be a cow town, like, standard issue fashion was Wranglers, right? And now it's like, <laughs> they, they call they nickname it Bozangeles now because there's so many people from LA up there, <laughs> which drives my dad nuts. And he called me this morning um, from the family ranch. He likes to spend a lot of time out there on the river and has a, has a little setup out there. And so, yeah, it's, it's, I'm very, I'm very grateful for it. It's the inspiration for a lot of my poetry. Let's talk a little bit about, whether or not you did any activities other than growing up there. Did you fly fish or were you hunter or did you get into hiking? Were there any things you did that were interesting in your early days? So we, uh, we did not have a lot of money as when I was growing up, it was, it was, uh, we had simple, we were simple means. We had enough to eat, we had clothes on our back. We had a house and there wasn't a whole lot of house. So for entertainment, We'd go ice fishing. We'd go camping, um, uh, boating. Very, we had a very simple old craftsman boat that my dad painted uh, red, brick red, you know, brick red, and that's still his favorite color for all of his motorized toys. <laughs> uh, we spent a lot of time fishing, water skiing, camping, all of those low-cost activities. <laughs> Enjoying the out of doors. It's wonderful. Yes, yes. And I read somewhere that you had said that you had an expressed desire to become a physician by something like 12 years of age. How did that come to be? 
Oh, that's a great question. I think, I think it, um, I don't know if it was a decision or responding to a calling. Um, if that makes any sense, it's just so innate to me. And when I look back and ask, well, why? I mean, it was very clear when I was 12. You asked all my friends from grade school, elementary school, and high school, they'll tell you. Um, if, when I look back and, well, why is that? I think that uh, when you look at extended members of my family, they're all healers. Um, my grandmother, uh, Norwegian, first generation Norwegian, um, she, a uh, really bright woman, but never had a chance to go to college. She put herself through college at the age of 42. Um, yeah, and the rest of the time she baked pies at the the uh, little town cafe in Drummond, Montana, which is a blink of a town. If you blink drive, you'll miss it, right? It's like tiny, but she missed thousands of pies uh, at working at that restaurant. So it, she, um, she taught herself reflexology. She had a lot of health problems herself. Um, it was a big deal to leave the duties of the ranch and go seek medical help. And medical help wasn't all that great uh, back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, we have different challenges now, of course. Maybe that's a sidebar discussion. But hopefully we'll get a chance to beat up on insurance companies. It's one of my favorite sports. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's because I think it's just sort of innate. My aunt is very much an intuitive person. I have a cousin who is extraordinarily empathic and is a, uh, insightful. Um, so I think it, I just, it just comes by, I come by it naturally, I guess. That's super interesting. I hear a lot of people tell me, particularly in optometry, that they were really influenced by something that somebody did for them visually. And it seems in your case, it's less about getting some sort of care or watching your family member go through some care and seeing a health professional do something good, but just this empathic family, these people who were healers by nature, as opposed to medical experiences that got you interested in medicine. I think that's a fair summary. Yeah. <laughs> I think it also explains um, my holistic approach to ophthalmology and ocular surface disease. I'm not satisfied with, you know, just a prescription and, you know, see a patient, here's a prescription and having a six minute encounter. I'm not interested in that. I do that, of course, but it's in the context of a comprehensive treatment plan that's aimed on recreating health and wellness for that patient. That's interesting. And I think I read that you went to the University of Washington for your medical training and fellowship. Yes, and med school. And, and I always joke with my patients that homegrown vegetables taste best. <laughs> <laughs> and then you ended up establishing this practice, this really incredible practice in Seattle. How did you go about starting that? Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a journey, right? Like with all these things, it's a journey. Um, I'm going to back up about eight years to when I met my incredible office manager, Christine Denui. She, well, it's, it's spelled Denui, but she pronounces it Denai. Um, She's from Minnesota. She's of Norwegian background as well. Like oh, incredibly hardworking, heart of gold, mouth of a sailor. I love her to pieces. <laughs> we first started working together in Redmond um, back in the day and just really recognized um, each other's hard work, commitment to patient advocacy. And she's the one that gave me the nickname Dry Eye Master. And I was kind of embarrassed when she first started calling me that. I'm like, ah feels a little braggadocious. I, you know, I'm not sure. 
And she's like, well, it's too late because I've already created your Instagram and Twitter account. Here you go. (laughs) So I have heard of credit for a lot of things. And we've been able to work together in different employment situations off and on, but really just love working together. And so when the COVID shutdown happened and I was an employed employed physician at the time, they laid everybody off. I'm like, called her up. I said, Christine, you know that thing we've been talking about all this time about setting up a dedicated dry center? She's like, yeah. I said, it's go time. And she says, game on. And so that's how it started. I started with her as my virtual office manager. She And she was working it as a second job. And my amazing licensed master esthetician, Raquel McJunkin, who had, we, we had met at an aesthetics event like four years ago. I'm just like really hit it off. And she's got incredible hands. She's incredibly skilled and talented. And both of these women have really, really keen brains, right? And and even better, they have awesome hearts. And so we just have so much fun together. Now we have an ocular surface disease fellow, uh, Dr. Sathi Maidi, and uh, we have a virtual fellow, Natasha Bolani. And that's really rounded out the, the dream of starting an independent practice, doing it our way. Um, yeah. So let's talk about insurance. The conundrum <laughs> of insurance in healthcare is that the patients often seek our services because they believe our care will be covered. We know there's a lot of variables that come after that sentence, but um, how do you deal with it in your practice? Um, right. So that was the other gift in the, in the shutdown. So, you know, there's a silver lining to everything, right? Um, if you're handed a bushel full of lemons, you can suck in a sour lemon or you can cut, squeeze, add water, sugar, and stir. Delish, right? <laughs> that was one of the other things is my extreme dissatisfaction with that stack them deep, run them cheap, every six minute model. And this, you know, non-medical administrator breathing down my neck, trying to tell me how to practice medicine. That's, that's, ooh, that gets my hackles up. So we decided to shift gears entirely and build everything around the needs of the dry patient. They're so complicated that you really cannot make good headway in a six minute encounter. It's not possible. So we turned the whole thing on its head. Well, in order for this to work as a business model, we're going to have to do it completely differently. And so we made the decision to go to direct care only. And it's not that far of a stretch when we're talking about advanced ocular service disease treatment anyway, because most of the advanced services are non-covered anyway, right? So it's not that far of a stretch to go, well, the office visit and special testing and the imaging are also direct care only. Now, what's interesting is um, we give patients their their HICFA, their super bill, if they will, and their notes, and they try to get they submit it for partial reimbursement and they're very few are successful. Um, I just, just uh, gosh, Friday I opened up a letter from one of the, the big health insurance companies with the line item stuff and denial, denial, denial. And they didn't, they, at the bottom the code was a member didn't provide the information requested. Well, they didn't say anywhere what information they wanted in order to make the client to pay the claim. So these guys have everyone over a barrel and this is my little independent Montana girl rebel yell. It's just like 
It's about the patient and getting them the healing they need. And I'm just tired of wasting my energy on that zero sum game. And it's, it's bad with prescriptions too. I can't even tell you how frustrating it is trying to navigate prior authorizations. How did we even get here? Right. I think it started 10, 15 years ago with, you know, MRIs because they were expensive. Okay. I can get that, but it's been a slippery slope. I can't even get a stairway through without having to go prior authorization hassle. It's simply unforgivable. We need to fight back, kick back, bite back. And in fact, I do that all the time on Twitter. I <laughs> try masters. Like I said, it's my favorite sport. I'm a really nice girl until it comes to that. And I was like, gloves off. <laughs> That's a perfect segue. I was going to ask you about Dry Eye Master. I started following you on Instagram. What do you do with that channel? Because there's a lot of interesting things there that I've seen already. Oh, thanks. That's so nice. Um, I'm still trying to figure out Instagram. It's um, each platform has its own style and messaging. LinkedIn's very buttoned up, and Twitter is just like I'm just, I'm just going to tell you how I feel. Snap. And then uh, Instagram is is a mix of personal life and clinical care and funny things that happen and stories. And I even put some of my poetry on there. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a mix of professional and personal and innovation. And, um, thank you. Thank you for saying that. I hope you enjoy it. But, um, I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> and I, I think the audience ought to pay attention to it. I think it's good. Now, uh, you're in Seattle, in Seattle area. What have the, yes. what has the Pacific Northwest done for your soul? Oh, that's a great question. I think um, I think I'm somebody that has to be near water and mountains. It's in my blood. Uh, it's really just it makes me happy to have water and mountains near me. So um, that part really satisfies me. Um, my sweet husband was born and raised in Seattle, so that's where we ended up settling down. Um, but I still make it back to Montana. I want to tell you a story about that, though. I mean, I love living here. It's great. Seattle's awesome. It's got a lot to offer. There's never a day where it's so cold. You can't go outside. Love that. It's pretty cold in Montana at times. But um, when I fly east, I can sense when I'm over Montana. There's just a sense of home. I was um, giving a talk in St. Louis years ago, and we were driving to the venue, and um, go over this bridge and this huge river. And I get that same shudder of when I fly home to Montana, I'm like, whoa, this feels like home. And I'm like, it was super weird. I was really confused by it. And I called my dad later that night. I said, dad, the weirdest thing happened today. And I told him about what happened. He's like, well, where are you at kid? And I told him, he's like, well, you had dumb shit. That's downstream of where you fished and played as a kid. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. That explains it. <laughs> oh my goodness. And that's, that's the inspiration for the poem, The Place Where Stones Smell Glorious. And that's the name of the small book that we'll be publishing soon. Well, I also, I'm going to get to your writing. I also wanted to ask you about your experiences as a cancer survivor. These are big steps in a person's life. And talking about it is something that maybe you've never done with others in the industry. I'd, I'd be interested if you'd share with us, particularly to motivate us that, that have dealt with it or who have dealt with our family and it, how you went through that process and what, what it did to you as a human. Wow. Yes. It's, there's a lot going on there, right? So when you enter medicine, you think 
you're going to save all these people and you're going to teach them all this stuff. But really what happens is the patients teach you. And I've had incredibly gracious, resilient patients who have taken their serious things, such as you know, brain aneurysms and six nerve palsies, and turned it into something positive. They turn that into meaning for others. And I think that's the root of healing. And so following that model, what I was uh, diagnosed with cancer 10 years ago, came out of the blue. I was, um, I was a she beast, you know, 14% body fat, right? Six pack abs. And I found a lump and, um, in an outdoor shower in Costa Rica, I'm like, Oh, this is awesome. Oh, what's that? Oh, I'll just watch it for a couple of months. Well, it didn't go away. And there you go. So slammed against the wall, 60 miles an hour. Ooh, right? That's a good visual. <laughs> everything came to a halt. There's, oh, and all the surgeries and all the treatments and, oh gosh. So it's, but there's a shame component for physicians in being sick. Doctor, heal thyself. I was, I'm very quiet about it. Like I haven't really talked about it much um, in part because of that shame component, but I'm finally okay with the share and I follow Brene Brown's work. I'm okay with the vulnerability of it, um, especially if it can create uh, meaning and uh, healing for other people. So that final chapter of healing from any major medical thing, and it happens right to all of us. We all have major medical stuff is uh, being vulnerable with it and creating uh, meaning for someone else. And it's okay to heal. Well, I'm sure glad that you healed. And it's so obvious that this holistic, um, thoughtful approach to growing up on the land and a, just appreciation for life had to be helpful in getting you through that. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. Um, that, that there was a lot of toughness, a lot of stubbornness, yeah. but um, also a lot of growth and uh, yeah, and, and healing and really taking inspiration from others around me in that journey. Well, I'm glad you're well. I want to ask you, you about <laughs> Dr. Epstein's strong point that you really work well with optometrists. That um, the, that is, I think, practically the experience of optometrists across the country. Uh, earlier this year, I interviewed one of my friends from the LASIK world, Dr. Lou Probst, and, and he has a very similar following. And I'm curious about how you do these engagements with optometrists and take care of these patients that are between the two of you and in your care with the optometrist that refers them because what you do really comes across as important to those doctors in optometry. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you. That's very sweet. Um, I'm a huge fan of Art Epstein. He's the sweetest man. Love him to pieces. He, he like to, likes to act all New York gruff, but I'm like, oh, I see. You're, you're actually a soft-hearted guy. <laughs> anyway, love him. Um, so it comes from many many sources. The first one is my first, I took five years off after fellowship to be a mom and have children and just raise the children. And he said, Hey, uh, LP, everybody calls me LP. Do you want to work maybe one day a week? And cause I, this is a family friend, uh, who is an optometrist. Do you want to work one day a week? Cause I, I would like to slow down a little bit and like learn how to fly. I've always wanted to learn how to fly a plane. I'm like, let me see if I can get a nanny. And it worked out awesome. So family friend gave me my first 
for right back into eye care, which I'm very appreciative and grateful for. I can still fit a contact lens. Yeah, I learned how to do all that basic stuff. So working alongside uh, optometry, um, but also there's a collegiality component of it. <laughs> Dry eye is such a huge prevalent problem. In my mind, there's only one thing bigger, and that's presbyopia. Presbyopia is the most common thing, and then we've got dry eye. So for me, it's all hands on deck. It requires everybody leaning into the problem because patients really do suffer from this. And so for me, it's um, there's a little bit of a Tom Sawyer come whitewash the fence with me <laughs> sort of feeling. This, this, this can be a lot of fun. And you'll see from some of my lectures, I like to infuse a lot of fun and humor and even songs from the eighties and you know, stuff like that, just to make, make, to make that hardcore science digestible and fun and approachable. So yeah, to me, it's about collegiality. It's about meeting the patient need. This is a huge need and it's a lot of fun. I love my optometry friends and it's an incredible honor There's to be invited a- to speak at optometric conferences. It's an incredible. Honor. Oh, you've gone to a ton of them. It's so fun. I love it. I, mean, I, love, I love all my friends. It's, in, in optometry, it's so much fun. There's something to be said about this idea that you work with your optometrists, of optometry friends, to surround the patient with great aspects of care. It really is about a team approach, it seems. Very much. Very much team approach. Um, and a lot of, and sometimes patients will seek a second opinion and he'll be like, you're getting amazing care where you are. And I, and I said, um, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send a doctor. No, they're like, they're like, oh, I don't know. They might get offended. Like, listen, I know this person and they are very keen on everybody leaning in to help you get better. Like, don't worry about that part of things. We're here to help you, the patient. Don't worry about our ego. We're fine. Like, it's like we work together. And that's such a big part of it is, is that it's a, a check your egos at the door approach with you. And, um, again, just to echo the things I've heard, and it's so clear to me that you care so much about the patient getting through the process and the journey that it's, it's not about what our degrees are, but what each of us can bring to the patient's case. And you have this incredible perspective on the industry because you've been so connected to research. I mean, you shared with me your CV and it's, it's in depth and incredible. There's been a number of interesting discoveries, and I'm sure a few coming. I'd I'd like to poke around on those. You talked about presbyopia and this idea that we're kind of starting down this path of of pharmacologic management with our old friend pilocarpine. And and I guess I'm curious if you see something beyond meiosis and depth of focus in in our treatment of of presbyopia in the future. What's it look like from a, a clinical research perspective? Well, from a clinical research perspective, I think the innovations come from pharmacologic delivery systems. That's where the secret sauce is. It's not just your grandpa's pilocarpine. We're not just flogging that people into submission, right? <laughs> into like teeny tight toned submission. We're not doing that. We're just massaging it a little bit and it maintains its, its uh, uh, what's what I'm looking for dynamism, dynamic, dynamism. Yeah, sure. Let's use that word. Um, so it's not your grandpa's pilots. It's that, and that's the cool thing about innovations. It's not just drug innovation and chemical innovation, but delivery system innovation. Um, I think that is a really exciting part of pharmacology 
that will help us develop better products. Other examples of that are um, uh, low-dose lodopredinol in a mucus-penetrating particle delivery system, right? It's like, get that wonderful molecule, that inflammation-calming molecule to the scene of the crime, shuttle it in there. It's like having a bodyguard to get up to the front row of a Hall & Oates concert. Uh, yes, please. <laughs> saw your Hall and Oates Instagram post this afternoon. <laughs> oh, wasn't that good? <laughs> I'm such a fan. It's like, it. I've been to 13 concerts three times in the front row. Wow. That's so serious. Much fun. That's serious fandom. <laughs> yeah, so so the, the <laughs> delivery mechanisms are, are delivery mechanisms are important. So that is true also in dry eye management. Yes. Yes. Delivery mechanisms um for getting that wonderful, those wonderful molecules, um, even cyclosporin, you can get higher concentrations with the right delivery systems. So I think uh, we're going to see more and more delivery systems, more and more mix and match, getting that optimal concentrations of different pharmacologics uh, for the presbyopia problem. I'm so excited for presbyopia. Oh my gosh. I'm your poster child. Oh, there you are. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> My, mine are close. I, I've just blown my print up on my computer to see it. Uh, it might not help us, but certainly it might help our children someday. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm excited looking ahead at cataracts potentially being medically managed. Right? Yeah. So with time, the lens stiffens and you get these disulfide bonds that form. And we have the potential with the right delivery systems and the right molecules to potentially break those disulfide bonds and restore that flexibility. Maybe they'll develop something for my tight hamstrings. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. You know, your work on the ocular surface didn't end, doesn't end with your care and your assessments in the industry, but you founded a, a line of friendly cosmetics and I think you call it quenchology. Is that right? Yes. Tell us about that. Wow. So there's, for, for doctors that are interested in ocular surface disease, you've noticed on your own that the association between cosmetics uh, application techniques and the ingredients and its association with ocular surface disease. Um, but men are not excluded, right? Men, here's what men do is they, they take the big old soap, couple of big, and they go, and they, under the shower. Right? Seems, that's well, exactly it. <laughs> for you, you're probably doing it here too. That's that's right. <laughs> you're stripping that delicate mybum that those poor little mybomian glands have slaved away to make. That's precious, precious mybum. Um, so men are not immune to this problem either. Anyway, so I noticed this association years ago when I was out in Redmond, when I started there in 2008. Um, so I've studied it for a long time and studied ingredients for a long time. I've gotten my sweet revenge on organic chemistry mm. <laughs> with my interest in, in um, cosmetics ingredients and safety for the ocular surface. I also um, was a medical expert in a huge class action lawsuit against Rodan and Fields for failure to disclose uh, the risks associated with prostaglandin analogs in Lash Boost. So I've peeked behind the curtain. There's a lot of smoke and mirrors and cosmetics and the poor patient pays the price. So out of 
years of searching and years of realizing the problem and study, I'm like, it doesn't exist. I'm going to have to make it myself. <sighs> All right, here we go. <laughs> so I'm a reluctant, uh, a reluctant entrepreneur, I guess, but um, it's to meet a need. It's to, it's to, it's to help patients. And are these products that you sell through your practice? Have you gotten to the point of commercializing this, this, this line? We're on our way to being available in the marketplace. All of our preclinical testing is done. Um, awesome performance in our um, preclinical testing and uh, wearability, tolerability, even in um, our children's patients. I, ha I had a, I'm going to tell a story. A beautiful 26-year-old patient, impressive ocular rosacea, get her under control with um, IPL series and neural stimulation and immunomodulator drops, all that stuff. Well, she goes to do her, her final wedding practice makeup a month before, <sighs> threw her into this huge flare up and she calls me really upset. I'm like, it's okay, it's okay, I got you. We've got a month, no problem. We got this, we got this. So um, the day before her appointment, my uh, prototype samples had come in. And so I, this, and I formulated these from scratch um, myself. And uh, the, the prototypes came in and I wrapped them as a wedding gift and I gave them to her. I said, I don't have anything that I, anything better than this to help you look and feel beautiful on your wedding day. And I gave it to her. We both cried. But she's having pictures on her wedding day. She looks so amazing. And um, it's just so cool to see people like that uh, feel good, look good, you know, feel better, live better, right? What a great way to sort of start the conversation around the way that your products will positively influence people. I appreciate you sharing that. You know, <laughs> I have an observation. We've, we've never met and it's been wonderful to get to know you. And this little bit of time I met you, you're a very compelling speaker because the more intense you get, the more quiet you get. You deliver a message very clearly and comfortably. I really appreciate that. I think there's something for me to be learned from getting attention from somebody else by um, toning it down a little. Do you know you do that? And and no, if not, I'm unaware. <laughs> it, it, I don't want to call it attention, but I, I think it's it's compelling, and I, I really want the audience to pay attention to it because it's very inspiring. <laughs> Thank you. I guess <laughs> I just just trying to express these crazy thoughts in my head. So I'm glad it's so. I'm glad it's not coming across as crazy. It's still be crazy. <laughs> It's not. And I think there's something to be learned about patient care this way, right? I mean, sometimes the harder we pound on the desk and the more that we're emphatic, the more we think that we'll get through. And, and I just, I'm taking a learning. So I don't mean to put you on the spot. I, I really mean that as a compliment. Oh, that's very sweet. And thank you for saying that. And, and to your point, um, we use a lot of humor in the clinic, right? A lot of humor, a lot of one-liners, you know, they'll come back and like, oh, I haven't done all the stuff I'm supposed to do. Like, there's no shame in this game. We just pick up and move on, right? And that grants them the grace to like, okay, you're right. We, we can have another run at this, right? And just um, the simple act of taking a really frustrated patient and listening deeply to their story is so powerful. I can't, I can't really put words to how valuable that is for patients to feel heard. And then when you swing your chair around alongside the patient 
that signals so much. I'm on this journey with you. You and I are a team. We're going to get this figured out together. It's, and it's, it's a very calm, lower the voice, just saddle alongside. We're on this together. It's powerful. And it feels good to be able to connect that way. Yeah. I mean, I speak to a lot of healthcare practitioners as a whole. Um, and at this point in time, at this <clears throat> part of our journey through the pandemic, wherever we are, um, <laughs> patients are so frustrated. People are frustrated. Staff and doctors uh, show their analysis in different ways. Um, yeah. This idea that we're in it together and we're going to find a, a path is a really important takeaway from what you just said. Yes, I think so too. There's um, the more compassion and grace you can show someone, the more likely they are to meet it in kind. And I see these shouting matches on you know, social media over some controversial topic. Just pick one. <laughs> it's like this, is, this pig pile of like, it's like, and then someone will say something really authentic and heart centered. And it changes the conversation of just taking that second to connect and humanize the experience and the frustration to be vulnerable with it, I think is a, a powerful, a powerful way of creating some healing. That's great. I understand that at one point, maybe you still do, you had volunteered for something called the Seattle Milk Fund. What is that all about? <laughs> That's a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> the Seattle Milk Fund is a charitable organization that was started over 110 years ago. And it was um, originally smart board housewives that wanted to do something with their time that was productive. So they would uh, uh, literally deliver milk to families in need because families were very large back then. There was a lot of working poor. There's still a lot of working poor. Um, and so that, that organization still exists. And it, it's so cool because it, there's uh, legacy circles where every circle is named after a radically generous woman. And, and I don't mean just financially, but with her time and her emotional support, just that, that somebody who really inspired you to be that radically generous soul. Um, so each circle is named after um, someone else in the circle that inspires it. So it's, it's just a really neat organization. And I did that a lot, uh, especially um, managed to do it somehow during residency. Don't know how I squeezed it in, but I did. Um, and uh, we, we did, we uh, continued for years and finally uh, all the members of our circle got a little too busy with kids and stuff. And we ended up uh, dissolving the group, but the organization is still there and they still do amazing work. And it's really fun. We organized a chocolate tasting party at my house. It was so fun. Um, to uh, bring people together and get a buzz off of chocolate is just really fun. Like it's, it's actually more fun than wine, really. Like the buzz you get from chocolate is just a different deal. <laughs> I'm a big fan. So when we were talking earlier, you spoke about some writing that your daughter did. And if I understand this resulted in a book, I'm just really curious about that. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for asking. Um, so if I may, yes. um, thank you so much for asking. This is her book for the collective by Carmen J. Spoonmore. You can find it on Amazon. It's, I think it's free on Kindle and it's 
$9.99 if you buy the, the book. But um, she, during the shutdown, when nobody was going to school and everybody was trying to figure out what's going on and I'm trying to set up an online you know, practice so I can still help my dry patients. We were all trying to figure it out, right? She disappears with her laptop and the dog and uh, find her hours later. I'm like, what you doing? She's like, oh, I'm writing a novel. I'm like, oh, that's cute. I'm thinking 20 pages, right? 200 pages later, we've got this incredible dystopian sci-fi novel that will knock your socks off. And here's the punchline. She's dyslexic. Not mildly so, but the kid can tell a story. <laughs> the kid can write. Um, it's it's really powerful. Highly recommend you get it. Support young artists. <laughs> Carmen Spudamore for the collective, and she's um, she's working on a second one too. And that's pretty cool. But yeah, she wrote it at the age of thirteen during the shutdown. Just well, her and the dog. <laughs> a uh, link to that in the description. Thank you. And. I also understand you're a bit of a writer. You've done some poetry. Um, I have some links to that too. How did you hone that skill? Oh, practice. <laughs> it's, I did an independent study my senior year of college. I actually graduated early, um, which was a good thing because I was paying for my own college and ended up saving eight grand. And I got to move up to Seattle early with Rick, my then fiance, and uh, worked out well. But anyway, I did an independent study. Uh, of poetry, uh, started writing in college. I'm not sure quite what inspired me. Oh, I remember what it was. Somebody I really, really admired was a great poet in college. I'm like, that's really cool. And then in English literature class, I had this amazing professor, wild hair, the whole thing, but just brilliant guy, um, introduced me to William Carlos Williams, the physician poet. I'm like, oh, you can be a physician and a poet too. That's awesome. And so the, that's what, uh, that's what inspired me way back then. And then I just kept at it, kept at it, kept at it. And now it's to the point where I literally have hundreds of poems and it, 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 it hits me like a lightning bolt. It's, it could be an image, a sound, a smell, something. And it'll be like, stop everything I need to write for five minutes. And I literally write it down and it's done. It just it has to come out. I don't have any control over it. <laughs> That sounds similar to what you hear songwriters get when they find a song. I think so. It must be a similar process. So it's just a, a creative download, trying to put words to feelings, and it's just like, oh, there it is. And I've written about, uh, you know, race issues. Um, <laughs> we had one black girl in my high school, um, beautiful soul, uh, Rochelle, and, and she... Um, she shares, we, we still have a tight group of high school friends, and she shares a lot about her experiences uh, being black in Montana and having four black children and the societal issues that are going on and the, the problems that we're having. And the, the struggle she, she, she's had, and it's, it's just like, I feel that, and I, just, I want to honor and somehow um somehow just show that uh that 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 words that sharing means a lot to me i don't know if that really makes any sense but things like that that really get me i'm like oh gosh i have to process these big feelings that's how it comes out that's so it sounds like a way to recognize and respect your friendship with her yeah 
She's awesome. Smart as a whip, too. I have a couple of questions. <laughs> um, you've got the opportunity here to talk to a lot of optometrists, people who work in eye care practices, and, and others that have followed my channel. And, and give my optometry friends some advice as to what you think, what are the opportunities is that they should strike in their clinical care of patients? <laughs> That's a great question. There's so many opportunities in eye care. Um, and I'm really happy to see all of this growth in ocular surface disease because it's um, adding on that medical model. Uh, the medical optometry, I think, is a powerful way to... Um, whether some of the market forces changes that's happening, right? Like how did VSP ever come to the fore? Oh, oh gosh, that's just junk. It's, it's, it's insulting is what it is, uh, how much they pay for your training and your exam. It's insulting. Um, and somehow we're kind of stuck with it in some ways, but um, you don't have to be stuck with it. You can, you can break free. And one of the ways to do that is to embrace this medical model. There's so many amazing resources for um, uh, medical optometry. There's, of course, the in-person meetings. AAL Boston was awesome, had so much fun. Gave two lectures there, which was really fun. Um, with uh, The first one was on presbyopia, and we had uh, Melissa Burnett and Selena McGee and Leslie O'Dell, and that went really well, full house, and then gave a really forward-thinking neuroinflammation lecture with Scott Halsworth, um, because we have these really cool um, treatments coming about in phase two, phase three, hopefully they'll come to eye care soon on a family of receptors called TRP, transient receptor potential, this huge family of receptors. And we were worried. It's like, oh, this might be a little far reaching. This is pretty heavy handed science. Packed room, great feedback. I'm like, yay, see, <laughs> like people do like, do, do like science. It's so fun. Um, and I lost my train of thought, which happens a lot. You asked me the question. I was going to get there, but what was it again? Well, you've answered it in, in part. I'll let you finish, though. It's about how do optometrists oh. embrace the future? And your advice is embrace the science. Yeah. Embrace the innovations. Like, yeah. we're so lucky to have all these amazing tools uh, coming to us, all these in-office um, modalities with, you know, thermal MGD treatments, with um, IPL, with... Uh, you know, microblepher exfoliation um, and all of our wonderful point of care uh, sales in not only uh, eye drops and but also um, you know skincare and and now soon uh, cosmetics as well. So there's there's opportunity and I think it's a great way to even out the the downturns and the the downward pressures of the over conglomeratorization of uh, frames and the traditional optical sales model. I love that. And the last question is what gives you joy in life? <gasps> I've enjoyed a lot of things. <laughs> it's good to be alive. <laughs> what gives me the most joy? Uh, I love my work. I love my work. Um, I love the creative scientist it satisfies i love um, creating i love art i love um love my family i'm really proud of my girls i have a really sweet hubby all those things give me a lot of joy i love my dogs i have the two cutest dogs you've ever seen so all those things give me joy
<laughs> and and you uh, painted that piece that's over your shoulder in our view. Yes, yes, I painted that years ago. I need to get back into painting a little bit more, but uh, yeah, that was that was done uh, years ago. It seems to me that all you need is another couple of hours in each day, and and you would be more fulfilled than ever. <laughs> That'd be awesome. I've gotten to the point where I'm annoyed with with food. I'm like, I gotta do that again. I'm having so much fun doing this other stuff. <laughs> Dr. Perriman, Sandbox Stories thanks you for these incredible stories and the way you describe <laughs> them. Thanks for joining us. Oh, this is so fun. And I love, I love your platform and, and what you're doing to really create community and we need each other. And I just really thank you for the opportunity to be here and, and share. Thank you. I am very glad that you were here and all again, put links for everybody that's listening or viewing onto the description of this meeting and to the audience. I really appreciate you attending and listening to Dr. Perriman's stories. And until my next sandbox story, be great at all you do.